today we're going to do something a little different. We're doing an episode where the uh, four brothers who are present, we're missing Diego today, sadly, are going to sell each other on a book. I believe Diego's getting ready to go to Cancun or something. Really? He's going to Merida, which is this beautiful island off the coast of Mexico, I think. Yeah. Apparently, dad and mom went there for the honeymoon, so they're, uh, they're reliving it. Yeah. Is it, is it, is, well, I don't know. Like, I, you know, I don't know. You, when you go to Mexico, you always worry about uh, like narco stuff a little bit. Or maybe I do because I read too much Mexican news. Like if you read too much Mexican news, you like you, you get really freaked out. Like you read about like the crazy stuff that goes down, like like assassinations of the chief of police in like a fancy neighborhood in Mexico City. Like when yeah, I remember- she was like not from the neighborhood where I grew up, she was saying, or like maybe it was far. I don't know. But she was saying like, I've been in this neighborhood and there was like an assassination to try and kill the chief of police. In the, neighborhood, like, in, in the neighborhood where I was born. And, and not only did they try to kill the chief of police, they killed a couple of his bodyguards and some poor lady who was like going out to sell street food. Like just, just terrible. Do you hear the story about when mom got shot at? I have never heard that story. It wasn't like they were going after her specifically, but um, she was in a car. She was on a date with this random dude who was not dad. And down the street, there was some shootout going on between like the uh, between two rival gangs or something. I don't know what it was. And there was a stray bullet that entered her car and like hit the seat to the right of her. No. Like she almost died. Yes. Like very close to dying. We were so close to not being here. Uh, that's, yeah, that's crazy. crazy. The the bullet went into her car. Not only into her car, but into the like into like this like the seat next to her. Yeah. Are you sure that's not an embellishment? No. Pretty straightforward about it. It wasn't like she was spitting this long story. She was just yeah. like straight up. Oh yeah. Well, that's that's how things were back then. You know what? Yeah. I I I was happier not knowing this story. It, it it's bothered me in an existential level. I think we're making Mexico maybe sound worse than it is. It's it's a dangerous place in some ways. It's it's a bullet in her car. It sounds pretty bad. No, Mexico City. Mexico City is bad. It's legitimately bad. I'm sorry, but it is. I don't think Mexico City parts of Mexico City are bad. Parts of Mexico City are not bad. A lot of the really horrible stuff you hear is happening in the north, right? So well, like it's got, it's, it's gotten a lot worse too. Like it, it's it's been it's it's worse than it was when we were kids. Yeah, so the thing I've heard is um, there's a rough side to Mexico, but there's also a very beautiful, a beautiful part of Mexico, which I think we should try and preserve. Yeah, but the, the, be- the beautiful part of Mexico and the dangerous part of Mexico aren't two circles that don't intersect. There's an intersection between those those two things. But yeah, you know what, Diego, Diego, is, Diego is responsible and, and Pearl knows what's up. I trust her. So anyway. Actually, my funny story about yeah. Diego um, Perla posted a snap story yesterday of Diego just going through Google Maps. He was just studying maps, Wait, uh, like going on just Street for, View and going just for forward fun? and checking out the streets of of, of Medida. Well, or, I, uh... that's what I thought. And I asked of Medida. That's I thought it was just random maps, but Perla was like, "No, he just wants to know the streets so he won't get lost." Isn't that hilarious? I think that sums up our brother very well. Not only do I respect that, but I've actually done that roughly before I go to new places. I have to say, of all of you brothers, Diego is the most responsible and on it when it comes to the podcast. Yes, that is very true. Like, he, he gave me status reports on his first ed- ed- edited episode. He was giving me progress reports. <laughs> <It was> like... <laughs> 
I know. He's, he's like, of all the brothers, uh, maybe even of all this family, he's the most responsible. Well, no, there's, there's, a, cer- there's a certain person who is not on the podcast who may, uh, may take the crown. I think Phil might be well, the it's easy to be most. responsible. It's easy to be responsible about the pod when you have no responsibilities concerning the pod, you know? Well, the Eagles pulled his weight. No, 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 no. You know, the... the, the oh, the unnamed. The unnamed one. brother who refuses oh, to... Oh, no, no, I'm not saying he's responsible at the... I'm t- talking about, like, life responsibility. Like, just yeah, in general. Like, general levels of responsibility. Oh, gotcha. This brother gave me uh, a pretty bad piece of advice, which I'm going to share with our listeners. Really? What, what, was the, what was the piece of advice? Now I'm intrigued. I was searching for a job. He gives good advice, typically. He's given me some very good advice in my life. I would say I can't think of another piece of advice that he's given me that is like anything short of excellent. But I was searching for her job, and he said very seriously on the phone, it is impossible to worry too much about getting a job. Well, maybe maybe that is, that's not bad advice necessarily. In certain contexts, that might be true. I would contest that. I would contest that because there's worry. I guess it depends on how you define worry, right? But I think worry, if like you're a psychiatrist, worry is when your wheels are spinning, but you're not actually problem solving, right? And this unnamed brother definitely tortures himself sometimes with. Well, he's with, turned uh, he's turned anxiety into a uh, into a superpower, I believe. Yeah. That's exactly, and that's not good, right? That's not, that's, not only is that not productive, but even if it were, I just, I don't think it's right. I realize that not having a job is like a very serious thing. No, 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 no. Hand, when I say superpower, I don't mean he's turned his anxiety up to the max. I'm saying he's weaponized his anxiety for good. I'd agree like, with you there. Like part, part, of, part, of the reason, part of the reason that he's, uh, he's a good doctor is that he's hyper-responsible. And part of the reason he's hyper-responsible is that he's hyper-anxious. I mean, if you, if you define anxiety as unproductive worry, then he's not anxious because his worry is always very productive. Or for the I most part. I don't know. I don't know. That's a philosophy in driving that you should always be worried when you're driving, which I just think is too much. Phil has that. No, philosophy. but it's also a thing like in general. They say that your max performance is when you have a little bit of stress going on, right? So yeah, but you can't. I I'm mean, sorry, you just can't be. You can't have a perpetual low level of adrenaline when you're driving. Like it just doesn't work. Yeah. Like you. Well, I guess the point is that you kind of do have to have that. Is like, I mean, not that you have to be always wired, but that you always have to have a little part of your brain that's like, okay, this is serious. I gotta take this seriously. Yeah, but I I don't yeah, think the accident doesn't happen when people don't take it seriously. No, no. What I'm saying is that you, I'm not saying don't be attentive when you drive. I'm saying that you need it. You need a kind of attention that's not fueled by anxiety. Well, again, to go back to it, all the advice he's given me is good, but I am a person who has been super anxious at different times in my life, and it's a pretty terrible thing, like uh, taking tests and stuff and taking exams. So that's not the that's not the right advice I think to give me or to give most people. Maybe for some people that's what they need to hear, but uh, but I would contest. It's impossible to be too worried about this. I think I think you need to have uh, you need to put a little spin on it. It's not that it's impossible to worry too much. It's impossible. It's impossible to take it too seriously. 
Okay, that's, that's, I would say that's good advice. Anyway, I think I wanted to change the topic of conversation and ask you guys about teachers in your life. Since I believe this week or this week or last week was National Teacher Appreciation Week. Mm-hmm. Some of us are still in school. Most and even those among us who are not still in school have One had many us. teachers in life. So let's talk about teachers a little bit. Well, I would actually contest, Juancho, that you are always in school because there's always someone you learn from, regardless of where you are. Wow. So pretty deep. Everyone listening to this podcast, regardless of whether they're in school or not, to think about a mentor in their life right now. That's some, uh, for, that's some fortune cookie level wisdom. Yeah. Thank you for your contribution, Quanti. All right. Um, let's talk about real teachers. I owe everything I love in my life to various teachers, at least all the fun stuff. Wait, that seems too strong. Wait, what's too strong? What do you say? If it seems too strong, we can just slowly increase the definition of teacher over time. <laughs> nice. Anyways, uh, no, but like maybe it's a little bit of a strong statement, but on the other hand, like, I don't know. The things which I have basically formed my identity around um, is only because of like basically two really compelling teachers that I ran into along the way who have formed me academically in a way that I, I just I would have been impossible if they had if it hadn't been for them, you know? Yeah. Can you give us some specifics maybe? I think that's always cool. Yeah, for sure. So th- the first one was uh, in college. This is my freshman spring organic chemistry course um, and organic organic chemistry is famously a challenging course um, and i got this professor who was a little on the older side this was his last year before he retired actually and i sort of expected very bad things from the course because of all the bad things i heard but he just had a very good way of methodically going through things he invested a lot in the class and the students and he would like to do review sessions literally every day after class twice a day for the kids to like go over things. And I got into the habit of going after class because it, it started right after class. I was like, I had nothing else to do. So I just go to the review session. It was pretty low key. It was just like do problem sets together or something. Um, and over that semester and the second semester of organic chemistry, because I, I took two, I found that I was like really enjoying it a lot to the point where I changed my major from some sort of engineering to chemistry just because I was having so much fun with or, or with Orgo. And it was really only because of all the effort that teacher put into making it make sense, right? Um, so my major changed. And now I'm actually, I'm, I'm pursuing a PhD in chemistry. So like the tra- trajectory of my life pretty fundamentally changed in the way that if he had just sort of like shipped in the class or like, you know, you know what I mean? Like if he had just... Uh, done the bare minimum and just walked us through and then called it a day, I would have been missing out on some things which have given me a lot of joy and a lot of fulfillment right now. That was beautiful. Oh, thank you, Wampi. I appreciate it. No, I'm, I'm serious. That was actually really nice to hear that. Well, that's one very important teacher. And the other has played a very similar role, but I, I don't, wanna, don't wanna drag life too, too much in that direction. Well, Carlos, please share one of your teachers. Yeah, I had a teacher, similarly, I took a class in college, changed my major after the class, a teacher named Janet. And she was just so great. She showed up every day, she was ready to go. 
she clearly did a lot of work in the background and she was such a warm and caring person on top of being such a good teacher that like two weeks into this course, I was like, I need to get all A's because I don't want to let Janet down. You know, <laughs> I think like the really great teachers I've had uh, have sort of, you know, stirred up that kind of loyalty in me, which is a, which is a nice way to learn, learn a subject. But she just knew her stuff so well. And she was like, you know, she had all the qualities that you need to be a good teacher, I think. She was patient and had a sense of humor and she was diligent. So guys, I have to, I have to interrupt. Look, in terms of what I think is noble and best in life, I think education, universities, teaching, mentorship, that's what I think is awesome and great. But, major but, we have descended into hallmark levels of mawkishness. Ah, like we need to, like we need to pump the brakes on this, guys. Like, is it like National Teacher Appreciation Day or something, or like? My friend, I said it. it's National Teacher Appreciation Week. It's na- okay. Sorry. Well, <laughs> I'm tired, guys. As as always, I'm tired. Um, you're right. Well, you're right. You're right. This is getting quickly sappy. And while these things are true, we they get a week. They should, I mean, a week. Like, can we have just a day? Wow. Wow. There's a lot. Well, I don't know. Like, you know, um, like, I don't know. Christmas is a day. <laughs> like, That's true. <laughs> yeah, no. It's also National Nurses Appreciation Week. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I'm saying. There shouldn't be overlap. We should have a day for the nurses and a day for the teachers. And it should and be it should a real really thing. Count. It should be a real yeah. thing. I, sh- I should know about it. Yeah, you're totally right about that. It shouldn't be a Google Doodle. It should be like, everyone has to buy donuts for the teacher in their life. I mean, you know? I don't think the government can do that much, but okay. You know what was nice though? Google for Doodle. No, no, no. You know, you, you know what it should be, actually? It should be a day off. Oh, Ooh. that would count. <laughs> yeah, I take that. Yeah, that, that everyone would be happy to celebrate that—the students and the teachers. The only, the only people who would be upset are the parents. <laughs> day off—that's how appreciation gets legs. You know, that's like that's the real. That's that's where the rubber hits the road. Oh, pay pay, pay time off. I think there should be more random days off in the year in America. You know, because I feel like those. Those few random days we get, where it's just like, oh, you know, this Thursday we don't we don't have to go in for whatever reason, are just such a blessing. Always so so good. Um, yeah, but I'm not a Thursday, a Monday or a Friday. Yeah, you're here. Anyway, let's guys, let's get into the the meat of today's. Episode. Wait, wait, I haven't been able to talk about my teacher, and I've actually thought about this. Pumpy, did you did you not know did you not notice me pumping the pumping the brakes extremely hard? I know, but I wanted to put recognition out to these two teachers. All right, all right, all right, go, go. All right, real quick. These two teachers, both my math teachers for the last two years, amazing teachers. I mean, these guys put so much into their work. It's it's amazing. I just wanted to give a shout out to them that I appreciate them. Boom. Consider that teacher, those teachers, consider themselves appreciated. appreciated. All teachers, I'm going to say, it, consider yourselves appreciated by the brothers out. This podcast is pro teacher. This this yes. this this is uh, such bad content because we're keeping these people anonymous. It's too it's too uh, it's too abstract. So we need to move on. You're right. You're right. Look, let's just dive in. We got a lot of lot of interesting books to discuss today because the premise of today's episode is actually 
for all of us to sell each other on books. So we've each picked books that hopefully the other people have not read. Uh, I think Juan Pablo was sort of iffy on that rule, but whatever, we'll let us let it fly. That was the rule. I haven't read it. I haven't read his book, so I've I actually okay. never heard of this book. Perfect. But anyways, we will take these books that we we have known and loved ourselves, and we're going to explain them and try to sell the other brothers on them and why they should read it. Now, the point of this is not to summarize, um, although a little summary here and there, maybe when it's appropriate is fine. But the point is really just to say, like, why is this a great book and why should you read it? Without descending into blurb speak, like, don't call anything transcendent or magisterial or epic. Right. Okay, that was gonna be like half of my discussion, friends. So, <laughs> I have a, I have a, I have a fun rant about this. Actually, I won't, I won't go into the full rant, but the summary of the rant is that, uh, yeah, criticism or the blurbs on the back of books or like typically the artistic criticism that I've read, they just use a lot of adverbs, and I don't know that much about writing, but I can tell you that adverbs don't don't do a lot for you. You know, they don't really carry a lot of weight. And so someone will say like, it's such a uh, a briskly entertaining read that's courageously pushing the boundaries of so and so. I don't know. I'm, 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 I, I should have thought of a good example before I came to the podcast. But you're not alone there. Like we covered on writing by Stephen King on this podcast. I don't think I was on that episode, but I read it before separately. And he has like a whole section on how you should write your first draft and then go through that first draft. And like, there are a couple of things you do, one of which is like cut out 10%. But another important thing is to cut out every single adverb. Because yes. he thinks all adverbs are bad. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I heard that or somewhere, but I've been doing that like since high school. I just read the thing and every adverb goes. You know? <laughs> I mean, obviously it's, there's like- it's, it's a drug. You know, you're going through and you're like, oh, let me throw some emotion in here by putting adverbs. Yeah. And they, they just sort of like, they just fluff things up without getting substance. Like yeah. occasionally you can need them, but it's always better off just getting a more evocative verb than relying on adverbs. Yeah. And another thing is that um, reviewers and like critics, I think they're often guilty of something that uh, Ernest Hemingway actually criticized, which is using a more complicated word when a simpler one would, would fit the bill uh, perfectly. Right. So when people talk about the myriad of ways, I mean, maybe I'm embarrassing myself here, but I don't I'm think I've ever heard so. word myriad where you couldn't just have substituted many or multiple or, or several or various or whatever the moment demanded. I think that that word screams, you know, desperation to me. Yeah, totally. Totally. For me, that word is plethora. Every time I hear plethora, okay. I'm just like, oh my gosh, like, just, just say it a lot, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, you're not a serious person. Now I understand. <laughs> no, I was yeah. Andrew, yeah. I used the word plethora today. <gasps> I did. Like, what? legit. I, I, I used you've it. Been, you've been officially written out of my will. Sorry. I'm, 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 of, I'm of two minds about it, guys. Because words, they, they're not just what they mean, right? The words have properties in and of themselves. Like uh, okay, let's 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 take a ridiculous word, uh, pulchritudinous. You could barely sure. say it. it. Means beautiful. Why wouldn't you just say beautiful? Well, pulchritudinous is an interesting word because it means beautiful, but it's actually a really ugly word. Yeah. So, is there a particular reason why you'd want to say pulchritude instead of beauty, or pulchritudinous instead of beautiful? 
Well, I mean, maybe, maybe in a certain particular context, it would make sense if there were, you were trying to get across some irony, maybe that worms its way into people's minds subconsciously. I, I don't know. I'm just saying that. You're right. But at the same time, I, in my daily conversations with people, we typically are not drawing these like deeply rich, you know, uh, word choices um, so as to evoke a certain sense in other people on like many levels deep, if that makes sense. Like we're just using words. So I think like normal conversations sort of sticking to simpler words is usually a good place to go. Although I don't follow. No, no, no. In general, in writing too, it's, it looked. In writing I mean, too, right? Like fancy words that could be substituted for, for with a simpler word. I mean, nine times out of 10 go with the simpler one. I'm just saying there may be a, there may be a time when it's okay. Yeah. yeah no, no, I'm with you, friend. I'm all for the richness of the language and the quirk, the quirks. You know, I think it's cool that English draws on you know like germanic words as well as latin words right um all that stuff is cool but uh but there's a few there's a few words i guess that are sort of just on a on a band list in my mind they're verboten if you will there's a fun article i read about this talking about the various etymologies of english actually and talking about how you can evoke different things like the germanic root is kingly where the the latin root is regal and right. the French root is royal. And how, if you think about it, each of those are subtly different, even though they all mean kind of the same thing. Oh, come yeah. on, they're all the same. No, 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 they're not all the same. So there, that's, those three words, I would say those three words are each in play 100% in their own in their own right. So I'm not opposed to, uh, to the richness of it. I think I'm opposed to a few particular instances where people are clearly just uh, handing it up, in my opinion. U- using thesauruses, we might say. Right. That's always smelly. You can smell that a mile away. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're getting distracted. Let's let's dive into the books. I mean, we're like 15 minutes in or something, 20 minutes, and we haven't even... Let's do the books. Uh, oh, sure. I'm going to go first. I'm going to talk about Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. You may think that her name is pronounced Virginia Woolf. I'm not sure. I think it's Woolf. Woolf. <laughs> it's, it's a great book. Uh, we said no summaries, so I'll, I'll, I'll be brief here, but... You need to know that it's about a day in the life of one person, Clarissa Dalloway. She's in her 50s, and it's it's sort of stream of consciousness. It's moving in and out of the minds of several different people. And I love the book. I read it uh, a couple months ago. Actually, this is a tease for the listeners. We're going to be recording a guest episode on it, uh, a couple friends of mine and me. So stay tuned for that. But why do I love Mrs. Dalloway? A few reasons. If, if, if I were to just describe the plot of the book to you, it would sound really dumb, right? Like this woman has a party, she walks downtown, she picks up some flowers, she comes back, she meets with a friend of hers. Uh, later in the day, that friend is walking downtown. At the end of the day, that friend comes back to her house for the party. End of book. Yeah, it sounds pretty stupid. Yeah, no, but what's amazing about the book is that a lot of it takes place in the minds of the characters, especially these two, Clarissa Dalloway and her friend Peter. And I don't know, it's just really cool how Virginia Woolf kind of moves in and out of different people's minds. The book, there's sort of like a metaphor for the book in the book, I realized, which is cool because there's this plane flying around in the sky and it's tracing out letters. And a few of the times the way Virginia Woolf transitions between characters is there's one character is looking at it and this, oh, there's a K, E, S, and they're sort of like figuring something out. And then some other character picks it up and they're like, oh, I think that's an A and that's a that's an F or something. 
And so uh, the plane, which is sort of weaving in and out of the lives of these different people, is exactly what the novel does. These people who are totally unrelated, but who all happen to be in the same park in London on the same day. Um, so watch, watch. What makes the book fun to read? What makes the book fun to read is, I know that sounded like a very sort of English classy point to make, but that kind of thing made the book super fun to read, this plane weaving it out in and out of the lives. The other thing that makes the book fun to read, and this is maybe the thing that most stuck out to me about the book, is the fact that when you're reading the book, Virginia Woolf is a beast. She's like an incredible writer and she makes you feel like your mind or your mind's eye or your attention is in a pinball machine. What do I mean by that? She's, it's a sort of stream of consciousness thing. And the same way that your mind will jump around when you're walking through this, through the city and you're thinking of, of one thing and then you notice something and your mind totally jumps. As a reader, you have that same experience, which is really cool. So I actually have a passage that I want to read um, which I think will draw at this point nicely. So Clarissa Dalloway is like a pretty introspective person, I would say. She's social, but she also thinks a lot about herself. And uh, here she's sitting and she's preparing for the party. And just pay attention to how like effortlessly the focal point, I guess, kind of jumps around. I just think it's, I think it's cool. Anyway, how many million times she had seen her face and always with the same imperceptible contraction. She pursed her lips when she looked in the glass. It was to give her face point. That was herself, pointed, dart-like, definite. That was herself when some effort, some call in her to be herself, drew the parts together. She alone knew how different, how incompatible and composed, so for the world, only into one center, one diamond, one woman who sat in her drawing room and made a meeting point, a radiancy, no doubt, in some dull lives, a refuge for the lonely to come to. Perhaps she had helped young people who were grateful to her, had tried to be the same always, never showing a sign of all the other sides of her, faults, jealousies, vanities, suspicions, like this of Lady Bruton not asking her to lunch, which she thought, combing her hair finally, is utterly base. Now, where was her dress? I don't know. That just really struck me the first time I read it. In fact, in fact, I'll say this. Five or six times I'm reading this book, and it's not that long. I read something like that, and I went back, and I read it out loud just to hear it because I thought it was so cool. I mean, that sentence is like 100 words long. That's pretty cool. Bravo. Very interesting. So you should read Mrs. Dalloway. That's my that's my pitch. I hope that's a decent pitch. Hmm. It is a decent pitch. I think I might go out and read it, especially when you described it as short. You know, things that yeah. are short and good, always worth the read. Guys, yeah, it is we, keep, uh, we keep knocking books by uh, praising their, their brevity. Now, brevity is a virtue. It really is. I feel like it's a backhanded compliment. No, not in the slightest. I feel like for, for me, when books are unnecessarily long, that's when I get really mad. I feel like it's author vanity half the time. Did you enjoy our date last night? Well, it was very brief. Ouch. Are there any books? I can think of a book, Anna Karenina, which has come up in past podcasts, that is very long. The edition I had was 850 pages long. And when it finished, I was sad that it was over. That's a good book. There yeah, you go. There, see, that, that, that is all long books. I am pro long books when it's worth it being long, but it better be worth it, you know? You know what kind of gets me? What? You know when you're like in a science class or something, and like these textbooks are like, you know, they're huge. I mean, they're like science, they're big textbooks, you know? And you're lugging these textbooks 
um, like all year long. I mean, this year my textbook wasn't that big, but usually the science textbooks are pretty big. And most of the time we don't cover most of what's inside the science textbook. You know what I mean? I think they could cut down a lot of what's inside those textbooks. Mm. I'm a pro of cutting things down. Okay. Side point. Andrew, what is your book? Ouch. Thank you for asking, Juan Carlos. Uh, so my book is actually something I've mentioned before in the pod. Uh, we were talking about When Man is the Prey, which is another great book. The book is called American Bison, A Natural History. It's written by Dale F. Lott, who was a professor of wildlife, fish, and conservation biology at UC Davis. Uh, he died in like the early 2000s, so uh, you know, it's been a little while. But the book is just astounding. It's obviously nonfiction, but if you have like the kind of mind that loves learning facts about things and uh, especially a mind that's sympathetic towards just feeling awe about about some like really cool, impressive animals, this is just an um, unbeatable book for that. Let me let me reel it back in for the book. So so he grew up in Montana. Um, was born in 1933, so really like old mid 20th century kind of kind of situation. Uh, and his dad and his grandpa were both uh, buffalo conservation ranchers, I believe. Maybe I'm missing some of the de- details here and there, but I'm pretty sure his grandpa ran buffalo con- conservation ranch. Uh, his mom was the the son of that man. His dad was some ranch hand who came to visit and then married the boss's daughter. And he was born in this environment where. Really, just like big fields, big mountains. Uh, part of this makes me want just to to visit Montana. It sounds incredible. So he talks about his life growing up in there. He bounces around. Uh, he talks a lot about his field work, taking care of these animals, um, or rather, you know, observing them, their mating rituals, their their fights, their arguments back and forth, and how they react. And he also talks about the human relationship. In fact, let me just break down like every section of this book real quick. There's like six major sections. The first one is bison relationships, which is like how bisons interact with each other. Wow. Yeah, right. It's just like you never think that would be interesting, but he just talks about it in a very narrative way, like talking about how the bulls are fighting each other and why they're fighting each other. And it's really one of the big draws of this book is that even though he's packing a lot of info in there, it never feels like a textbook. It just feels like him telling a story where he happens to tell more details every now and then. Part two is a deep dive into bison physiology. So if you ever wondered what, how they regulate their temperature, why they're black, even though the prairies get to be ridiculously, disgustingly hot in the summers and black is a bad color for that, uh, how they eat their grass, how they move, that's chapter two. Uh, chapter three is all about the sort of evolutionary history the pre-Columbian populations, uh, ancestors of the buffalo. Four is all about the grassland they live and walk on. Five is about neighboring animals. And six is about really the six is probably one of the best chapters. It's all about the human relationship with the buffalo, which is very beautiful and romantic almost at times. So what I probably love the most is that you walk away from this book sort of having this sense of how important the buffalo was to its ecosystem how central it was to the Native American tribes that would that would hunt them on the prairies, right? Uh, how it was emblematic almost of an American spirit and how almost everything in this ecosystem revolved around the existence of a big herb, herbivore. 
because these prairies, unless you have big herbivores like bison, they just do not exist. They cannot sustain themselves. They're not healthy. They're not right. There's almost a symbiotic relationship between the, the buffalo and the, and the grasses and all the other animals that, that live there. So really, the, these buffalo were almost like ecosystem engineers. Um, and this book does an amazing job of capturing the sense of awe we should, we should have at just how important they were and how much of a role they played. So, I mean, that's basically, I'm, I'm kind of just rambling at this point, but like, basically it comes down to that is it's just like this beautifully researched book, almost a labor of love from this guy who spent his whole life studying in, like, you know, an animal. I, I, I say this a lot. I don't think I've said it on the pod yet, that my favorite kind of nerd is the biology nerd. Because there's lots of nerds out there. There's the physics nerds and there's the, I don't know, the literature nerds. Uh, poetry nerds, theater nerds, whatever. My favorite is the biology nerd who does sort of ecology because these guys will just throw themselves out into the wilderness and study animals super close, like really get to know the behavior of like a mosquito fish somewhere that spends all its days eating mosquitoes. And like, sure, maybe that'll be useful one day if you throw the mosquito fish in the pond and it eats mosquito larvae. But really, they're just obsessed with how these animals tick. Uh, it's a beautiful thing to watch, even if it never really was my primary interest. So yeah, if you like ecosystems, if you like nature, if you like America, both as a land and as an idea and as a nation, I think you will love this book. Cool, cool. That's a good pitch. And I want to second that ecology nerds are the best kind of nerds. Well, Andrew, I, I, I may read the book, but you've descended into full old man territory. Oh, jeez. Like, well, yeah, it's like you, it's like becoming a World War II buff. Oh, like my a Civil War buff. Oh, no. <laughs> What's happening to me? Fred, do you want to go next or should I? No, I can go next because you can make fun of mine even more. Hmm. Um, oh. So this book is what is glorious about uh, tenure in America. So there's this... Ooh. There's this religious uh, studies professor out in one of the Carolinas, I think. And she became a full professor. And I think she just, uh, she said YOLO. And she decided to write a book about UFOs called American Cosmic. That is not, it, it's not what you think it would be, right? You would think you would get like a, she, she analyzes UFOs as if they were a religion. Um, but the book, the book starts out so strange. Right. There's there's like some academic bits in the middle, which aren't as interesting. But the book starts out with her like she she figures out that like there's some overlap between you, you know, people who think they've seen UFOs and certain religious phenomena. And she's like, I'm going to study this like a religion. And she she gets <laughs> she gets involved with this guy, Tyler D. And, you know, the book basically opens and she's being driven out to the desert in New Mexico blindfolded with like a, another professor, like some engineering or, you know, someone in, in STEM of some kind, they're both blindfolded. And this, this guy who she doesn't name in the book, who she calls Tyler uh, D for Tyler Durden from Fight Club, is driving him out to New Mexico to look for artifacts. And she, she, she gets there and she realizes the desert is the, uh, maybe she realizes later, she realizes the desert is like the, the desert that it was filmed in like an X-Files episode. Like very strange oh. stuff. I mean, like the guy is extremely wealthy, the, the Tyler D character. And uh, she just kind of, she 
she kind of gets sucked into this world, you know, and, and her, her position is like a religious studies professor is I'm not a believer or a disbeliever in this. I'm just going in here to study people's relationship to it. But it gets, it gets so strange. Like at the, at the very end of the book, she and this, this Tyler D character, um, she convinces him to go. She's, she's, she gets permission to, to go visit the Vatican archives and, and at the, um, the Pope's summer palace to like, they have like a space archive up there in the summer palace, apparently. So she gets permission to go there with, uh, Tyler D and, uh, you know, the, the guy, the guy, the guy ends up becoming a Catholic, like just very, like very, like, like just the book isn't fully like, I would, I would, I would, I loved it. And, and I, I, I say this with affection. I mean, the book isn't fully coherent, but it just, it, it just, uh, I don't know. It just, it struck a chord with me and it struck a chord with a lot of other people, I think, because she's, she's really out there. Like she's, 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 you know, she, she's, you know, she was on a podcast with Ezra Klein, who, you know, he's a fairly big personality in media. I mean, just several like high profile appearances like she's sort of penetrated into the cultural consciousness and but just there's just so many things to me that are fascinating about her life like the reason she was going to the vatican is because a billionaire paid her to go to study why there's two saints both who were purported to have levitated or flown uh well not well one person who was a saint one person who only never was fully canonized one being St. Joseph of Cupertino, who, you know, think what you will about it, but there's there's uh, hundreds of, there's like just a lot of historical records of people witnessing him levitating, like, you know, like people in crowds, like popes, kings, like it's just, it, there's just a lot of people talking about it in, in the, you know, the medieval literature. And I'm not sure what, not sure what historians do with that, but you know, that, that that's out there. And there's another woman who's purported to have done the same thing. Uh, I believe her name is Maria of Agreda. Hers was a little different, right? She, she had a sort of like a mental experience of flying around the world. And this was, I believe, at a time when, and, and describing the world as a sphere, and this, I believe it was at a time when people didn't really know that necessarily. And going to, to the new world, to, to New Mexico, and uh, people eventually got there, and they started talking about Christianity or Catholicism to these natives, and they said, "Yeah, we already we already know about it. We you know we heard about it from this Maria Agreda woman. Now, of course, that could be hey, geography, blah blah blah. But there's both these kinds of stories about these two individuals, and a billionaire paid her to go figure out why one was canonized and another wasn't. Like the, the, like there's not really a point to that story, except that." Like, who are you? Like, what is your life? Like, yeah. Like, you're getting paid to, like, jet off to the Vatican, you know, with a, with a UFO weirdo. Yeah, right. Her life is, like, thinking about UFOs and weird spiritual experiences and, like, ah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I, and, you know, and she's, like, she's got, like, a close relationship with the Vatican's, like, chief astronomer. I, I believe his name is Brother Guy Consolimano. Oh, I'm mispronouncing his last name, but. Yeah, just just like this is what happens when you get tenure. Like it just means you never have to apologize. 
Like this woman like totally would not have made it in academia when she had tried to do this kind of work uh, earlier in her career, definitely pre-tenure. But now she, she's got it and she went and she did this crazy thing that anyone would have, with any common sense, would have told her not to do. And the result of it was that she's kind of built up a little bit of a cult following. Do you think this is an argument for tenure or against tenure? Oh, definitely for tenure. I, I, I just I just love that people can be quirky, like they can be different, right? Like for better or for worse, one of the things that is rewarded if you're an employee in a market economy is conformity. So I'm just kind of glad there are people who are allowed to be eccentric who aren't already rich. Does that make sense? Yeah, nice. Yes. Sounds like a weird book, but I think I'm sold to probably give it a shot. Well, honestly, you could like skip the middle chapters. You said it gets very academic? Uh, well, maybe not. I mean, it, it gets a little like that. I mean, I, I wouldn't say they're not worth it, but I would say my favorite chapters were the first and the last. And I, I feel bad saying that. I feel bad saying that you could skip the middle chapters because it feels like a little, like I feel a certain affection for her. Like I feel like I'm betraying her by saying like you don't necessarily have to read the whole book. Sounds kind of like a Marvel movie. It is, it is a little bit like a Marvel movie, yeah. Like, there's, like, this mysterious billionaire who's, like, paying this person to go do research on, like, a... The going to the Vatican archives is a little on the nose, I think. I think it's cool. Also, Fran, it's a good point about conformity, that the market economy rewards conformity. My only quibble would, the, would be that, like, I think people with tenure, even though professors don't make, like, a huge salary... They're often wealthy, like either they come from wealthy backgrounds or I don't know, they're like in on companies or they write books or even if they don't actually have that much money, there's a kind of wealth in having like perfect job security and lots of connections and professional prestige. Totally, totally. So Quampi, tell us about your book. Okay, so my book is kind of like a family quirk, a family classic called This Island Isn't Big Enough. For the four of us, and it's by Gary Gear Greer and Bob Ruddick. So it's a very interesting book. It's about these two kids who, like all summer long, they're begging their parents to let them go camping on this island that's uninhabited. It's like so small that it's not on maps, like on maps, just like anywhere. But it's just a cool island. So uh, they go and they actually find out that there's already people camping on the island. Not only is there people camping on the island, there's these two girls who absolutely hate them. And they absolutely hate these girls. And so it's a very interesting book. But it starts off with a very funny part when, um, they're well, they still haven't left off to go on their vacation. But they're talking about their tent and they're going. And it starts off with, it's a sissy tent, he yelled. No, I countered. It's just colorful, that's all. It's got character. I think I kind of like it. It was bad, all right. Very bad. Any other tent in the world would have been a big improvement. But the sad fact was we were stuck with it. I had promised to borrow a tent, and unfortunately, this was the tent I had borrowed. As soon as I'd gotten it, I set it up in my backyard and then called Pete on the phone and asked him if he'd come over to see it. Naturally, he came right away. Naturally, because studying the, the next day, this tent was going to be our home for seven days. And then blah, 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 blah. And of course, our tent, our very own Hansel and Gretel gingerbread house tent, the deluxe model, the first in the new line of tiny tot tents for backyard camping, the cutest, sweetest, most lovable tent ever made. 
So I don't know. There's just little things like that, which absolutely get me in reading this book. I love it. Yeah, this book is a classic, an absolute classic in our house um, because we would – this this was sort of like in the rotation with, with a couple of other books for things our mom would read to us before she put would tuck us into sleep when we were very young, younger than Juan Pablo is. And specifically these authors, Garrett Greer and Bob Ruddick, are astoundingly good. So funny. They have another book called Max and Me and the Time Machine, which has oh, rolling on the floor every yeah. evening. No, it's pretty killer. This island ain't big enough for the four of us. I think I liked about it a lot when I was younger was the idea of having an island to yourself. Oh, it's or amazing. Or like being at war with these other girls. And there's like all these cool features about the island. I think they, there was like a big tree house that they found. Yeah, no, no. There's a guy there. I didn't want to spill all the beans. But these girls are with their aunt. And this guy, he actually has a tree house on the island, which he goes every year. And every year he adds to his tree house with a new level. And so... um. Like, he has this huge treehouse because he's been doing this forever. And he meets a woman, and he actually falls in love with the woman. But then they have a huge argument, so they have a huge falling out. And then it becomes a war on the island. A war for, I forget, it's like Poopsie Woo or whatever, like a turtle or something. Oh, Yeah, no, it's funny. It's a, it's a funny book. Fun it's to read. perfect. Fun to read with young kids. Fun to read at any age. It was absolutely a great book. It's a heck of a book. And, yeah. If you have, especially if you have kids and you're looking for something to read to them, this is probably about as good as you could ever get. Yeah, it's definitely better than the American Bison. Oh, I mean, this you want to amazing. Put, yeah, but do you want to put your kids to sleep or do you want to put your kids? To sleep? Isn't that the point to put them to sleep? I mean, it's a bedtime book. This is a bedtime book. The American Bison is a not bedtime book, Andrew. I like the sound of the American Bison. I'd be down. I mean, I like the sound of the American Bison, but if you're talking about kids, this island isn't big enough for the four of us. Versus the American Bison. Well, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, sure. you're right, you're right. This is not a book for kids. Um, but it is It is a very romantic book in many ways, I think. Andrew, your book sounds great. Yeah, th- it, I just, <laughs> really just Did I tell you I went to Yellowstone and Grand Teton uh, in, over the summer? I think you mentioned it before. It's really a really cool trip. It was sick. I might try to go to Olympia National Park at the beginning of the summer for just like a weekend. Nice. An extravagant weekend, but we'll see if it makes sense. There were bison galore at uh, Yellowstone. There used to be 30 million out there, and then they killed them all. It's really sad. There was like one decade where they sort of made a sort of industrial business of murdering the bison. They would go out and like clockwork would bring in like 10,000 skins per man or something. And then after, you know, years of that, the bison herds were basically non-existent. The industry collapsed and the bison were gone. How are they doing now? They're doing better. I think there's like a stable herd, but there's a lot of issues with sort of getting proper genetics and not adding mixed herds in there because there's a lot of herds out there that have partial cow genes, mm. you know, so they want to keep it as pure bison as possible. Bison eugenics. I've never thought about that. This guy thought a lot about bison eugenics. All right, guys, I think, I think we, we got to wrap this up, but Thank it's you. been a lot of fun hearing about your book recommendations, but yeah. See you next time on the Brothers F Podcast. Hey everyone, this is Wappy, and I just wanted to make sure that you subscribe to the Brothers F on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Also, if you have Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, make sure to follow us there too. See you next time on the Brothers F.